This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alexandra Pritza about her book, Decay and Afterlife, Form, Time, and the Textuality of Ruins, 1100-1900, coming out next month with the University of Chicago Press. Welcome to the podcast, Alex, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Leah. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So Alex Pritza received her PhD in medieval German literature from the University of Zurich in Switzerland. She spent two years then on a postdoctoral grant at the Department of Germanic Studies at the University of Chicago before she joined the faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in January of 2016. And Alex's scholarship brings together her training in medieval and early modern literature and history with a sophisticated theoretical approach that illuminates the entanglements of literature and philosophical discourses. She's already published a book um, on biblical exegesis and poetics entitled in the German Heilsgeschichten, Untersuchungen zur mittelalterlichen Bibelauslegungen zwischen Poetik und Exegese. And that translates as Salvation Histories, Studies in Medieval Interpretations of the Bible between Poetics and Exegesis. And this appeared with Kronos Verlag in 2010. Her second book, which is the subject of today's podcast, treads new paths by pivoting away from her immediate visual fascination or immediate visual fascination with material urgency of ruins and towards the textuality that ruins manifest in discourses about disintegration and survival, be they literary, philosophical, or historiographical. Decay and Afterlife takes readers on a journey across Latin, Italian, French, German, and English-speaking lands of Europe, traversing the long durée of 800 years of intellectual and literary history. And we'll now come to this book uh, pretty soon, which looks at this engagement with ruins through a wide range of inflection points in European history. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you, Alex, a little bit about um, yourself. Tell us a bit about your background and what brought you to German studies and to literary and cultural theory in the first place. 
Sure, yes. Um, so I came to German studies quite early in my life uh, when I was still in high school. Um, and um, I'm not making this up. I can even remember one particular moment when I first thought uh, that I didn't just enjoy reading, but that I could imagine making this uh, my main occupation for the next few years. Um, I was taking an honors class uh, with my regular German teacher, and we read uh, the Swiss author Gottfried Keller's Green Henry. You're certainly uh, familiar with this book, Der Grüne Heinrich. Um, and our teacher explained the concept of magical realism to us. And for some reason, um, what he explained made complete sense to me. So it was my first experience of um, literary theory really grasping something crucial about its subject matter. Um, it was just a small scale epiphany, but it was enough to catch my attention and my interest. And um, I took a gap year after uh, high school and actually changed my mind twice before finally starting my studies of German language and literature um, at the University of Zurich, but I did it in the end. Um, and for a very long time, I considered myself um, a modernist. I only read texts that were written before 1750 uh, because they were part of the curriculum. Uh, but then a new professor um, came to the University of Zurich, a professor of medieval German literature, and his seminars were a true inspiration. I think um, he taught me that medieval literature and theoretical reflection in particular, that was very um, interesting and important to me, could be combined. And that historical thoroughness didn't necessarily have to imply that there was conceptual superficiality involved or vice versa. And then after completing my MA degree, I became this professor's student, his PhD student, so he was my advisor. Um, and he was the, um, the inventor and leader of a big research project on media and mediality. Um, and that was a very interdisciplinary context, but it was led, uh, as I said, by this medievalist. And in this interdisciplinary context, I then started to branch out a bit from my immediate field of German studies. And because I had um, second majored in theology. Uh, my first serious attempt at interdisciplinarity was uh, to create a dialogue between literature and theology. Uh, and that's the topic of my first book that you mentioned, um, where I deal with biblical exegesis and biblical epics, um, meaning literary texts that retell and supplement and reshape biblical narratives. But I was... Um, also, you know, in, in addition to that, I was deeply influenced by contacts with philosophers, and especially one who then became a very close friend. And together, um, we discovered and then pursued an interest in the philosophy of time. And this interest is what gives and uh, what what gives and gave my work continuity. And even if it looks like my first book <laughs> and the second one on ruins do not have that much in common, um, I think that the tempor uh, that the concern with temporality is what connects them. And um, I could maybe add that Zurich um, was a place in which cultural theory, you asked about cultural theory, um, really thrived in the early 2000s. Um, they created a new MA in Kulturanalyse, in cultural analysis. And um, that actually happened with quite a time lapse to the emergence of Kulturwissenschaft um, in Germany. And this brought um, interesting scholars to the university, but it also initiated a very critical discussion about the relationship between uh, cultural theory and the traditional disciplines, like, for instance, um, German studies. 
there was a kind of drive towards cultural theory in medieval literary studies um, in the 90s and early 2000s, if I see it correctly, and probably even earlier, because the field started to see itself um, as the basis for the cultural theoretical approach. Um, The argument um, on the medievalist side was that medieval studies was always already cultural studies because in the Middle Ages um, there was no clearly distinguishable entity literature, for example. Literature was always entangled with its context. Um, So what could be considered a literary text was often also religious or also medical, also philosophical, and so on. So um, because, you know, we also, and then we have this material culture in medieval studies that also makes it difficult to really um, define what a text is. It's very different to um, to the modern um, definition, if there is something like a definition of a text, but the modern idea of what a text might be. Um, and independently um, of the medievalist interest in cultural theory, I think what remains for me from the discussion that we had in Zurich um, and from the texts that we read is that um, first I'm a semiotician at heart, so cultural semiotics and reading culture, um, not exactly like a text, but you know, it's comparable uh, reading culture. So this is something that um, remained um, one of my main interests. And it, I think it's obvious in some of the chapters of my um, new book. And the other interest that remained was um, an interest in creating spaces in my own writing uh, for dialogues between disciplines, between times, um, between methodologies, authors, and texts. And, um, you know, I think that this is who I want to be as a literary scholar, a creator of encounters between authors and texts that without me wouldn't have been combined uh, and put in a conversation in exactly that way. Um, and the ruin, um, if I may, if I can add this and then I... <laughs> Um, I will stop. The ruin was an object that um, resonated with many of my interests. So it was temporally complex, the subject matter of a variety of different disciplines. It combined concrete materiality and reflexive abstraction. It was semiotically and semantically flexible. And when I started to think about ruins, I was first, um, like much of the scholarship, very fascinated by the visuality. Um, But the project then changed over time. And I ended up focusing on, focusing on the textuality more. Um, and ironically, this was something that people had to point out to me. So readers of earlier and later drafts of my manuscript had to point out to me that I was actually interested in the textuality and on how ruins created discourses and emerged of this cor- uh, out of discourses. Um, and that the material aspect was a little bit less um, important. And as a last remark, um, you know, while these... Uh, original ideas for the book emerged during my, um, I call them formative years in Europe, the interdisciplinary and comparative approach really is something that I could only pursue here in the United States. Uh, And the particular turn that the project took towards a combination of a wide range of texts and periods and points of view was only possible after my permanent, permanent move here. So in that sense, the book really is a document of two academic traditions um, it is a transatlantic book, um, literally. That's fascinating. And, and you have touched on this briefly in terms of um, your particular intervention in thinking about ruins less as, as artifacts in terms of their visuality and more in terms of their textuality. So I was wondering if you could also just lay out what what are ruins for you or um, how do you use ruins as um, as a as a conceptual anchoring point or framework? And then... 
and you touch on this briefly as well um, in your last comments, but I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how you made these decisions to group this these disparate texts and thinkers in your book and how you made the decisions that you did to achieve this long durée study that goes across many countries, um, many languages, many literary traditions, and also, of course, many years. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Uh, so uh, the first question about what a ruin is, it looks like this should be a very easy qu- question to answer. <laughs> but scholars have tried um, to come up with ruin typologies, for instance, uh, by distinguishing the ways in which ruins happened, whether they happened slowly or suddenly or in a war, in a natural disaster because of the passing of time um, and so on. And ruins also play an enormous role in romanticism uh, and its theory of fragments. But the distinction between a ruin and a fragment then is not as straightforward as it might seem. Uh, So scholars have also asked um, whether a pile of rubble is a ruin and what the criteria are to call it that. Now, the ruins that I'm interested in are fragments um, or remnants of architectonic buildings. And characteristically, uh, these fragments or remnants um, appear as sites of contradictions. Uh, And the contradictions that we can find find everywhere, um, um, for example, in classical paintings um, of ruins or in photo volumes on the post-industrial ruins, or in the um, Baroque symbols of vanity, in Romanticism's treatment of history, which tends to be somewhat nostalgic. So these contradictions all have in common that they are conditioned by time. Um, And ruins, in that sense, can be read as traces of former integrity. They can indicate a very slow transition, a steady passing of time, or they can be a sign of very radical ruptures and the suspension of historical uh, experiences. For example, when the event that caused the ruin was very traumatic and sudden. Um, So ruins are, and that's, you know, maybe it sounds very vague, but um, for me, what is important is that they are very susceptible to a wide range of meanings. uh, And ruins often, because of that, they uh, reject or rebuff uh, rigid categories and they stoke the imagination. um, They attract uh, aesthetic signification. And in what way that happens um, is what I'm what I'm kind of examining uh, in my texts. And many scholars have also focused on the perception of ruins, so the gaze of the spectator, for instance. Uh, That's often the case uh, in those uh, ruin uh, texts or in scholarship, you know, where uh, people deal with the visuality and the materiality. And there is a scholar, um, of uh, a ruin scholar, or he's an art historian, but he dealt with ruins. Um, His name is Heksha, um, and he very early in 1936 spoke of the romantic feeling for ruins. So that doesn't mean that somebody is in love with a ruin, but it means that someone has um, a special sensitivity for ruins. And he declared that as a very modern sentiment that replaces um, something that was... um, characteristic of pre-modernity, as he says. Uh, pre-modernity, pre-modernity had a sensation of horror because um, ruins seemed ugly to people in the Middle Ages, for, for instance. Um, and all that had to do um, with his uh, idea or his claim that uh, you know, something had to happen that um, people who looked at ruins, the ruin gazers, could uh, 
all of a sudden, so to speak, perceive it as an aesthetic object. And what had to happen was um, that the medieval notions of beauty, which are, for example, very much influenced by Thomas Aquinas, um, whose formal criteria uh, linked beauty to integrity and proportion and clarity, you know, meaning that one can look through the object to its core. So this had to be um, rethought um, in order for uh, ruins to become aesthetic objects um, after the uh, Middle Ages. That's the important point. You know, everybody claimed um, ruins are actually aesthetic after the Middle Ages. Um, and there was even, uh, so Peter Burke um, he claimed that the Middle Ages even were historically, uh, or they were indifferent um, towards ruins. They didn't have enough historical curiosity to find uh, ruins interesting. And there was an interesting practice um, in late antiquity and in the Middle Ages. Um, people used Rome as a gigantic quarry and recycled the rubble um, as new building material. And one can, of course, for a definition of ruins, also look um, at the etymology of the word. Uh, and that reveals a lot, too, because um, the aspect of transformation is very dominant um, in the use of the word ruina, because in classical Latin, um, a ruina, first of all, occurs almost never. But when it occurs, then it usually means not the result of the collapse, the, you know, the uh, decayed building, but it actually means the process of collapse. And then the noun disappears um, from, um, from use, basically, in the Middle Ages. It's almost never used. And if it is used, then um, related words, adjectives and verbs are used. So, or um, the words just for the intact building that the ruin used to be. So, for example, if there is a ruin of a theater, um, people in the Middle Ages would just call it theater or temple, if it was a ruined temple. So there you can see, you know, that this um, uh, illusion of integrity was something that the Middle Ages wanted to keep. And um, yeah, even though I needed uh, to have certain categories and definitions to be able to narrow down my, my research object, um, the interesting question to me is not necessarily what ruins are. It's very interesting to look at the history of that. Um, but for me um, and for my book, um, it's a little bit more relevant to what they do and how they influence discourses, how they emerge from them and uh, have impacts on texts. And then to your second question, um, res with respect to the uh, choice of texts, um, there were a couple of things that were clear to me very early on. So I wanted to have a very broad historical perspective, as you as you mentioned. Um, and I wanted to have a combination of canonical and non-canonical texts. I also knew uh, that I didn't want to focus on romanticism because so much work and good work on, has been done on romanticism already. Um, then I absolutely wanted to include the Middle Ages because uh, it challenged me that they were considered this ruin-free zone. Um, therefore, Hildebert de Lavardin, the French uh, theologian and poet, was a very early choice. Um, I then added Gregorovius, the 19th century German historiographer of the city of Rome, when I realized that there was a reception historical connection between him and Hildebert. Um, then Petrarch, he is the canonical author in ruin scholarship. And I knew uh, from the very beginning that I wanted to include his letter um, to Giovanni Colonna because they visited Rome and, you know, People usually, or many scholars have, have then said um, that this is actually the moment where a ruin even um, 
how do you say that, they enter the consciousness of uh, Western culture and of Western history. Then there's the romance Hypnerotomachia Polyphili from 1499. That one is also almost a canonical text, um, but uh, with respect to architectural theory. Um, and there are also ruins in this romance. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to do something different and not focus on the architectural theory, but on the narratological functions of ruins. And then um, Georg Zimmel was uh, clear very early on. His essay, The Ruin, it's a very short ruin from 1911. Um, and it's a canonical text in ruin scholarship. So many people work with it um, in different ways. And I combined this text, and I had also written about it quite early on, um, you know, when I started to think about ruins. I combined him with Goethe um, because the essay gave me the impression that somehow Goethe's novelle, so that's a text uh, whose title is actually novella, um, mm -hmm. and it's a short <laughs> it's a short story. I thought that that must have been in the background. So I can't prove this point, and it's not terribly important for my argument, but um, the impression caused a pairing. Uh, and I think I could make the point that ultimately Goethe and Zimmel pursue a very comparable goal. Then the combination of Thomas Burnett and Hegel is probably the only one that has uh, no basis in history. Uh, but they both experienced a sort of aesthetic shock when they hiked across the Alps because they thought, you know, this, these are ruins that we are seeing here. And following that experience, Burnett then wrote an entire treatise on the ruined state of the earth and Hegel. Um, he attached reflections on the relationship between parts and the whole and concretion and abstraction uh, to this hike. Um, and then we have the early modern period, uh, especially during and after the Thirty Years' War. Um, that's a time of very intense reflections on loss, on transience, on vanity. Uh, and ruins are one of the prevalent motifs in art and literature at the time. And I have a certain focus on the early modern period. And I therefore then pair uh, the early modern German poet Martin Opitz with, his, uh, with the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca. And Opitz translated Seneca's play The Trojan Women, and he juxtaposes and kind of uh, blurs the boundaries between the Trojan women and the women who are witnesses of the Thirty Years' War. Then I have another early modern German author, Andreas Gryphius, uh, and he wrote a play shortly after the end of the Thirty Years' War. And my claim is that in this time of peace, Griffius tries to um, absorb and reorder the knowledge um, of his time. And um, my claim is that he merges the realm of thought with the world of things and balances the concreteness of ruins with allegorical abstraction. And allegories meaning, um, you know, um, means of ordering knowledge in the early modern period. So I pair him with an early Enlightenment literary critic who criticizes precisely this use um, of allegories in Gryphius's work. And then in addition to this, I group, um, and in some cases I also chose the text because uh, in my view they developed their argument or their narrative uh, with respect to a similar problem of time. So the propitious moment um, would be that problem of time in Petrarch and Hütte Hypnerotomachia, uh, then there is a problem of living on in Opitz and Seneca and also in Ildeberg and Gregorovius. Uh, then we have the battleground of time in Gryphius, Breitinger and Burnett and Hegel. And then Futures and Ruins is the, uh, is the topic of Goethe and Simmel and my epilogue on, on Detroit. And each of the pairs also then focuses um, on specific problems that seem important for examination of the ways in which discourses um, are arranged around and emerge from encounters with the ruins. 
And I should probably finally also say that the first part of my book that I call Foundations um, and in which I develop my conceptual framework also works with dialogical partners. And in the first chapter, I paired the German philosopher Martin Heidegger and the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. And then in the second chapter, the German philosophers Hans Blumberg uh, and Walter Benjamin. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And actually, with regard to that pairing of Heidegger and Freud and, and what you mentioned, this idea of experiencing aesthetic shock um, when encountering, for example, ruins or the Alps, I wanted to bring up the idea of these anxiety-ridden travels of protagonists in their encounters with the ruins of antiquity. So how, how does this experience, this tension between expectation and the confrontation with ruins, function to develop discourses that, that you cover in this book? Yeah, so um, the first anxious travel really um, happens at the outset of this uh, of this book already. Um, Heidegger and Freud, um, they do express anxieties about an actual encounter with the ruins um, of the past because they know those ruins from readings and hearsay, but they have never really experienced them. So their physical visit to the ruins of Greece poses a very big challenge to the perception of reality. Um, and it forces them to reflect on some of the premises, especially epistemological premises, um, and also about the outcomes of this undertaking. And I hope uh, that I can show that both thinkers reconsider the discourses that they have established and for which they are known. So in Freud's case, that would be the Oedipal conflict, and in Heidegger's case, a reflection of truth. Um, and at the same time, they are also prompted to ponder the status um, of an emerging textuality that ruins manifest in, in their respective travel reports, or in Heidegger's case, it's a travel report, and in Freud's case, it's a letter. So in other words, um, what's at stake are the relations between existing and new discourses, and their defining features, and you know the, the fact that they can trans be transformed, that they change. And Heidegger and Freud, uh, they both contemplate um, these aspects against the backdrop of very complex temporal questions, and these involve a tension between lifetime and world time. And this concept um, I take from Hans Blumberg, I can maybe come back to it a bit later, but um, to make the relationship between travel and anxiety a bit more concrete with respect to Heidegger and Freud. So both of them, um, they postpone their travels to Greece, Heidegger for roughly 10 years and Freud for a couple of hours. Uh, but in both cases, this delay is very telling. So it's the attempt to avoid uh, dealing with the challenges and the impositions maybe of reality. Uh, Heidegger, he does not want to be disappointed by the reality of Greece um, because it's a place that he has shaped over and over, over, over his entire life, basically in his imagination. And he has, he has also seen it through the eyes of the poet Hölderlin. Um, Hölderlin is almost uh, like a guide, um, you know, a tourist guide through Greece. But uh, Hölderlin also never visited Greece. So it's an imagination built on an imagination. And in Freud's case, um, he's confronted with the reality 
of his guilt, um, of a guilt for being um, privileged enough to visit Greece um, and privileged with respect to his father. So his father was never able to visit Greece, and now Freud um, interprets his hesitation to go there and then also his reaction that he has uh, in Athens when he finally sees the ruins as an expression of that guilt. So um, Freud basically reaffirms the validity um, of his main discourse um, when looking at the ruins of Greece. Um, So he explains his hesitation before visiting Athens uh, by reframing it as, uh, or by framing it as an Oedipal conflict. And uh, Heidegger, on the other hand, he thinks of alternative ways uh, to understand um, what it is that reveals itself to him when he finally visits the, Rome, uh, the ruins um, of antiquity. Um, so he thinks um, about antiquity and the ruins um, through concepts of fragmentation and supplementation. And I would say that this is actually something quite new in Heidegger. Um, he is usually considered um, a thinker, you know, the, who, who doesn't change. So he had this one big change um, that's called the Kere in his thinking. But uh, often he's uh, regarded as a thinker who doesn't change much. But I think that that's actually, um, you know, an example that proves the opposite. And now we have Petrarch. Um, his, re- his relationship with Rome was uh, kind of troubled. <laughs> um, he was born in Italy, and his father moved the entire family to France um, because he had to leave Florence. He was a supporter of the Pope um, in this power struggle between um, the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Emperor. And he moved the entire family to uh, France. And um, uh, Petrarch, he hated Avignon, where they settled, with a passion. Uh, and this hatred had political reasons because Petrarch considered um, that uh, only Rome had was, uh, was the legitimate universal imperial power. And he wanted to see that power restored. So that was the main goal um, in, in his life. And when he visited the city for the first time in 1337, he was well aware, you know, that he would find only a reflection of ancient Rome. He didn't have the same expectations as Heidegger, for for example. Um, so he knew um, that he would only find a f- reflection. But others were worried that the city's desolate state um, would spoil Petrarch's image um, of Rome. For example, Cardinal Giovanni Colonna advised against the trip. And it seems that Petrarch, too, um, postponed this trip uh, a couple of times, but for different reasons than um, Freud and and Heidegger. And unlike Heidegger, um, for whom the visit to Greece, at first at least, confirmed that reality and readings are incompatible, um, in Petrarch's case, uh, you know, he apparently found the experience not at all at odds uh, with what he had gathered from books. So he even wrote in a letter then to um, Colonna, that reality was uh, didn't diminish anything uh, that he had imagined, and that the ruins were actually even greater than he ha- than he had imagined them. So he took the trip um, without much delay, but he postponed um, the description of his impressions of Rome. So um, his inability to write about Rome uh, is the first thing that he mentions um, to Colonna. And four years later, he will then visit again. He returns to Rome, um, and he then explores the city together with the Dominican monk um, Fra Giovanni uh, Colonna. That's a different Colonna than the first one that I mentioned. 
And the letter to his companion, uh, in which Petrarch then uh, recalls their wanderings around the ruinscapes, uh, that would become an important document for many readers who later then wanted to demonstrate that Petrarch was a modern poet. And I've already mentioned, you know, this uh, uh, trying to bridge uh, this gap between a pre-modern, the pre-modern and modernity was attached to Petrarch's view um, of Rome's ruins. And nevertheless, Petrarch was very ambivalent in his love for the city. So he uh, had an admiration and uh, and a desire to restore Rome, or to restore Rome's integrity. Um, but uh, he also struggled with the semiotic and semantic fragility. Um, he struggled to grasp the greatness po- poetically. And... Um, when he then, you know, moved ultimately to uh, to Italy in 1353, he wrote to his friend um, uh, that he he finally wanted to go home and settle in Italy, and that he wanted to go to Rome, you know, which was uh, kind of the destiny of his uh, of his life. Um, but Petrarch's uh, Roman plans were totally just a dream. He never he never really fulfilled that. Um, he he um, went and lived in Milan. Uh, and many of his friends, um, among them Giovanni Boccaccio, they thought that that was betrayal, betrayal um, towards Rome, but also betrayal because he um, entered the service of the despotic archbishop, archbishop um, Giovanni Visconti. So in short, Petrarch's life, his works and letters, they all circle around Rome as some kind of um, you know, an unachievable utop- utopian place uh, that has to be restored. And my thoughts uh, on the propitious moment or the Kairos um, are based on Petrarch's experience with ruined Rome uh, and his many attempts to overcome the fragile historical and semiotic status of the decayed city. Uh, And this also had an impact on his poetics. So um, my thought there is that realizing the Kairos, the right moment for restoration, um, uh, means, you know, that the intact form in in poetry, but also in reality, uh, has to be restored at the right time. But Petrarch shows in his writings, uh, he constantly misses every opportunity to seize this right moment. Uh, And this failure um, allowed then for me, for the conclusion that not the fulfillment of the Kairos um, is at stake, but its delay. Um, So uh, that's a vital temporal operation uh, that creates this historical and biographical and poetic possibilities, I think, in Petrarch's work. And then we have Polyphilo. He's also kind of a traveler, a wanderer, um, because he follows his lover Polia through a landscape of ruins. Uh, and my argument is that the ruins introduce an element of history into the story that otherwise establishes just, you know, a world of timeless ideals. And then Ildebert de Lavarna visits Rome as well. Uh, that's a troubled visit because the Normans have destroyed Ro- Rome shortly before his um, visit, and he then grieves over these ruins. Um, uh, Gregorovius, he lived in Rome. Um, that was a slightly less troubled relationship there. Um, but uh, Rome as a place is then very much connected to his life work. Um, so sometimes he juxtaposes um, his time in Rome, his history that he's writing, and his own life. And then um, Opitz and Gryphius, they did not travel, and they don't let anybody travel <laughs> in their works either. But Burnett and Hegel are then again uh, hikers and travelers who, who are shocked by the, the um, 
the view of the Alps. And Goethe is an interesting case. Actually, he famously, of course, traveled to Italy. And when he arrived in Rome, he was um, also, uh, you know, in, in his description in the Italian journey, um, we can see that he seems to have arrived somewhere where he always wanted to be. Um, he evokes um, opposing experiences. Um, on, on the one hand, you know, he senses that in the eternal city now his aesthetic education comes um, to a close uh, or his aesthetic education is actually animated by reality. And on the other hand, um, he also, um, you know, has trouble coming to terms um, with the fragmented state of the city, because after his arrival, Goethe reports that he has gained um, a general idea of the city, that he has compared its past and its present. Um, and he also uh, described how this is a slow process that leads to the affirmation of the newfound consistency and the liveliness um, of, of these observations. But his attention is first captured by intact and ruined architecture and he repeatedly returns to those places um, of ruins where he found uh, the first monuments. And he says that the mapping of the city um, you know, is a difficult and melancholy business because it affords the beholder an experience of magnificence and, and devastation. Um, and Goethe also points out that this can't be conceptualized. So he grapples to reconcile the two sides of Rome, um, the multiple transformations uh, that the city has gone through, um, and then the unchanging reality, on the other hand. So this ambivalence, um, I actually tried to capture uh, with my concept of forms. Um, and this concept of forms and has much to do with Walter Benjamin's point of view, um, his understanding of forms. And, and on that subject, I wanted to ask you a bit about how Walter Benjamin continually recurs throughout the text. So how does Benjamin's work on form, on history, and on translation then help bring light to new ideas about afterlife throughout your work? Yeah, so um, the term afterlife, you know, probably many readers wouldn't re um, relate that to Benjamin immediately. Um, in German, the term is Nachleben, and this has often been uh, cited as, uh, as um, an invention by Abi Warburg. Um, and in his work, Nachleben refers to the uh, survival of images and motifs uh, as opposed to their um, reappearing um, or their replacement by innovations. Um, but Warburg is not, um, you know, his, his recurrence of these visual tropes that he calls pathos formulas, um, and they reappear in Western culture. Um, so that's not my point of reference. My approach uh, is based, as he said, on Benjamin's discussion and on his surpassing also of the contemporary philosophy of life, Lebensphilosophie in German. Um, in his um, essay, uh, The Task of the Translator, he um, understands afterlife as an after-ripening, um, nachreife in German, of literary forms and uh, of literary forms in various stages of their met of their metamorphosis. Um, so meaning, you know, that they enter different um, forms after, um, um, not after, beyond the original of translation, for example. So this afterlife of the original in the form 
um, the afterlife in the form of the translation in this particular case um, in Benjamin's essay constitutes what Benjamin then will call the work's fame and also its history. So in this sense, form, fame, and history are very deeply related in Benjamin's thinking. Um, and history is what, in his view, requires reconsideration on, and uh, rewriting. It's a history uh, in, in shatters. It's a history in ruins. But um, there are also elements in this historical process that persist, and Benjamin expresses this concept by stating that succeeding forms um, help tease out and unfold the original's meaning and to make it a bit more concrete, like different uh, translations of a work. Um, they actually help tease out the meaning of the original. And in adapting this position and combining it with my understanding of history um, as mediated through forms, uh, I use the term afterlife when I address persistence in change and change in persistence, um, to say this a bit um, chaotically. And there is a very specific aspect of the Benjaminian understanding of afterlife that relates to Hans Blumenbach. Um, he's Benjamin's dialogical partner in the second chapter. Um, because um, afterlife and with it, then Benjamin's vision of history as subject to um, um, a subject to uh, or dependent on uh, the liminal concept of destruction, uh, of ruin and of death, that's the connection that I then ma can make um, to Hans Blumbeck. So that's the point where I connect the two. Because mortality uh, for Benjamin is at the horizon of every transformation. And for Blumenbach, the afterlife of forms is mainly a matter of cultural and then specifically aesthetic reception. But the purpose is to console humans in the face of an impending death um, and the challenges of just our harsh reality. Uh, and the fear of one's transience is what Bloomberg captures by distinguishing lifetime and world time. And these are two concept that, concepts that are um, of very great importance for my readings, because Bloomberg states um, that humans uh, have an inclination to feel provoked by the length of world time and the, very, and the, and the, uh, the brevity and the shortness of their own lifetime. Um, and in the gap between these two temporalities, so to speak, um, uh, in, in, you know, in our attempts to negotiate um, the conditions of afterlife beyond one's individual lifetime, the forms then can take root. So the forms help us um, over this disappointment that our lifetime is so short <laughs> and world time is so um, unjustly long. And I also wanted now to to your sixth chapter, which is where you bring into conversation um, Seneca's Paradis with Martin Opitz's translation. And so you speak earlier also on the role of translation. How then does Opitz's translation succeed in both carrying on old worlds and shaping new ones? Yeah, so um, as you said, I discuss <clears throat> how um, Seneca uh, in his tragedy, uh, the Trojan women, or Troades and Opitz, in the 17th century translation, deal with uh, war-related um, uh, problems. And specifically, uh, I say that, and here the semiotician uh, comes to the fore, that uh, they deal with uh, semiotic breakdowns. And especially with the question of how one can live on after and outside of meaningful sign relations. Um, 
So the sign relations then mainly have to do with how the world, the Trojan world is set up. And I say that that breaks down and then there is a sense of meaninglessness. So I posit that in Seneca's and in Opitz's works, we are faced with kind of a borderline case of vanity. It's an experience of complete meaninglessness um, brought about by the loss of this semiotic um, world, which in turn then threatens the loss of lifetime. Um, and in the early modern text, I think that this problem of the semiotic breakdown is now aesthetically mediated. So instead of brooding over the fragments of the uh, destroyed and decayed world, that would be a gesture that Benjamin ascribed to the people of the Baroque. I think um, instead of that, Opitz manipulates time um, in his uh, translation by, and I have already mentioned that, by blurring the boundaries between the Trojan women of the past or of the, I should say, of the drama, of Seneca's drama and of his own present, um, the women of his own present, of the witnesses of the Thirty Years' War. So he manipulates this time um, relation and he thereby establishes the early modern world as a network of science in which life uh, after the war is possible again. So um, Opitz's translation in that sense is a form of afterlife in the Benjaminian sense. Um, so with respect to the life of the original, the translation is a belated and also a deficient form, but it's also indicative of a new beginning that emerges from the fragments. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Benjamin says that a translatable and translated work always consists of fragments. So rupture is the condition and the result um, of continuity and then vice versa as well. And this theme of, of rupture and continuity recurs throughout the work. And you also talk and, and have mentioned the importance of the concepts of world time and lifetime uh, in this text. So I wanted to return then to both your discussion of it in, in chapter two, but also in chapter five, when you talk about the German historian Kleke uh, Wolvius. Uh, how then does his history of the city of Rome allow for some continuity um, and interplay between these concepts? Yeah, so um, Gregor Wolvius uh, is, generally speaking, I think a typical representative of the mid-19th century um, because he seeks to combine precisely what you said. Um, he uh, seeks to combine a late romantic aesthetic techniques of self-fashioning. So he wants to kind of flesh out, point out, and uh, um, feature his own lifetime. Um, and he does that in the light of decay. And he combines it with a universal historiography. Um, and that universal uh, historiography is what I uh, thought, uh, or this is my claim, it, it refers to this, um, uh, the, broader, the broader concept of world time. And in his chapter, Gregor, uh, in, this cha in this chapter, uh, Gregorovius enters into dialogue with the French theologian, um, um, Ildebert de Lavardin, um, who mourned medieval Rome and uh, Maybe I'll, I'll just say briefly what Hildebert does um, in his texts, uh, because he, he writes two poems about Rome um, after this visit. Uh, they're called Roma and Item de Roma. And there he processes the experience with a look at ancient and Christian Rome, respectively. Um, and um, he basically um, replaces the collapsed um, semiotic world of ancient Rome with uh a new semiotically intact Christian world. So he replaces the ruins with the cross, uh, so to speak. Um, 
and roughly 750 years later, um, Gregorovius then includes the first poem that Ildebert wrote in his History of the City of Rome in the Middle Ages, and he links it to the passage about historical discontinuity um, um, and to an experience of ruin with, he, with regard to his own lifetime. Um, so he describes his birthday, um, and then in his um, uh, journal, he also mentions that on that day of his birthday, which is a very gloomy um, thing, he looks at the ruins and feels very depressed. And then he says, um, on that day, I actually wrote the passage about uh, the Norman invasion of Rome. And that's, of course, uh, the passage uh, in the history of the city of Rome in, in the Middle Ages, where he talks about Ildebert uh, de Lavardin. So living on in both cases takes on um, uh, you know, uh, that living on is in the foreground, and in Gregorovius it takes on a secularized meaning, um, in which the ruin of Rome is the yardstick by which Gregorovius me- measures his own melancholy uh, uh, of his own existence, but also, I guess, the political ambitions of the young kingdom of Italy, which is another context um, that was um, uh, that carried some weight uh, in Gregorovius's text. And I wanted to also now zoom out a bit. So you've talked a bit about how ruins, um, how you conceptualize ruins or how you don't conceptualize ruins in terms of how they can operate within each text. So so what sort of liminal force does, um, what, what liminal forces um, do ruins serve as throughout each of these, these texts? Yeah, so I think... Um... Well, at the center of my reading, I think of Petrarch and the Hypnotomachia. Um, yeah, I think I will point out the time concepts because it seems to me that these are, um, you know, the forces that kind of uh, rule <laughs> each of the chapters. So the propitious moment in Petrarch and the Hypnotomachia, this time com- concept brings um, uh, the poetic and historical force to light that hides uh, in this postponement and the practice uh, of lingering delay um, that I uh, observe there, and it reveals how ruins of the past uh, survive. Then in Hildebert uh, Fana- uh, and um, and uh, can I say his name? Ferdinand Gregorovius. I'm sorry. Uh, they deal with the challenges of how to live on after this experience of disruption. Uh, and whereas Hildebert offers a semiotic solution, Gregorovius claims continuity um, by aesthetically linking his world time, uh, the world time and his own lifetime. And living on in Martin Opitz then um, is a concern as well. So he reshapes Seneca's poetic world uh, in his translation. He establishes the aesthetic form as the condition for life's continuance. And then on the battleground of time between uh, the concreteness and abstraction of ruins, Breitinger and Gryphius, um, and then Thomas Burnett and Hegel uh, struggled to conceptualize and realign competing and overlapping discourses, um, I would say. And in Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and in Georg Simmel, um, the, I, I observe an antithetical uh, move against synthesis, um, which is... Um, something that then secures the continuity of literature um, and philosophy. So I make a big claim there. Um, the ruin is the force of something uh, kind of supra historical or, uh, you know, um, very, very interdisciplinary because uh, I apply it to literary history and the history of philosophy. But anyway, so that's, I think, the force of the ruin, ruin in that particular uh, context. 
And you talk about sort of the sustained fascination with ruins as kind of ruinophilia. And in your, your epilogue, you even take it to um, the contemporary moment or, or more recently in Detroit in the con- context of a city in a type of ruins. So that made me then think a bit more about our current cultural moment and how we're acutely concerned with issues of mortality and time. And so it seems that with the pandemic, we're both so hyper-concerned with the sort of a hyper-singularity that we find ourselves in, or at least a perception thereof, while also perceiving that our time has no edges, that we're losing many milestones. And it also made me think about the climate crisis as well. So as you phrase it in your chapter on Seneca, quote, ongoing lifetime in the face of a vanishing world and decreasing world time, unquote, is taking place. So I was wondering then to what extent you might have thought now that your, your book has come out, so this is, you know, probably finished the manuscript a year ago, um, you know, how do ruins play a part in our current discourse, in our current moment when we think about, say, ghost towns as a result of the pandemic uh, or the transformation and destruction of, of the environment? Yeah, that's a very big question, a very good question. And uh, my answer, I'm afraid, will be very simplistic. Um, But maybe um, I can start with what um, Svetlana Boim said um, about what happens when we deal with ruins. Um, She said that we acknowledge uh, the disharmony and the ambivalent relationship between uh, the humans uh, his, uh, be, be between human historical and um, and natural temporalities, and um, starting from there, I can maybe say so. Ruins are always um, sites of ongoing um, living history. They are um, filled with discourses of the past and the future, uh, and they are always receptive. They change. Um, so uh, the dilapidated 21st century city of Detroit, um, as you said, the topic of the epilogue gives evidence of uh, yet another constellation that arranges discourses around ruins. And some of these discourses are very old. That's what, one thing that I wanted to show. The lament over a broken world, for example, or the melancholy of life after loss. That's a very old discourse. And then other discourses are very contemporary. For example, the discourse of financial economy. And they offer semiotic frameworks, I guess, to deal with crises and the change and the transformation. Um, And um, these new discourses are different from the patterns that are familiar from tradition. But while the constellations um, are in themselves always different and always complex, they are related, you know, to different notions of time, times, uh, time, and um, uh, they transform our view of history and so on. Uh, while that's the case, certainly, um, the textuality also manifests on something that persists. And to me, that's this triad of world time, lifetime, and form um, that I think remains stable over the centuries. Um, so that comes up somehow in every ruined discourse that I have looked at. And it seems to be the case that this accounts for the fact um, that the present has always been the past through and future, whether or not that's a consolation, I don't know. But it accounts for that fact. And uh, it seems to me, you know, that there is a certain... Mm, hope for the acceptance um, uh, involved in this book that ruins have 
uh, or have been and are the sites of both sense and senselessness. So they are semantically rich, but they can also be frozen in time. Um, so there are both possibilities. That's the tragedy, and that's the uh, that's the uh, that's the beauty, uh, maybe, of ruins. Um, I think ruins can be warnings. They can preserve memories. They can promise futures. Um, they can be uh, sites uh, in both in reality and in art or in literature where our narratives about transience and mortality emerge and maybe where our imagination takes hold, uh, where it can start working through our immense losses. Mm -hmm. I think that's beautifully said and um, perhaps yeah, how we can use and think about ruins today. And I've taken up plenty of your time already, but I do want to ask you one final question before we let you go, which is, what are you working on next? I know you've just completed a big book project, but it's never too early to start thinking about a new one. Yeah, I have started thinking about a new one. That's uh, you. You put that. You put that well. <laughs> um, and I think you know that the new project will be on speculation about the end times. So the topic of time will certainly stay with me. And I think um, also the question how humans have throughout history dealt with the passing of time, the fragility of their existence, and the regret and the sadness that it causes, but also, um, I guess, the exciting wealth of artworks and literature that can arise from the threat of an imminent ending. Well, I'm looking forward to reading about that, um, as perhaps dark as some of those topics may be. Um, but I want to thank you again so much for joining us, and I'm Looking forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure um, to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.